One of my favorite things to do at home and when I'm abroad is visiting museums. It's in these spaces that important stories of people, culture, history, and our planet are preserved and shared. I love them because, of course, they are spaces where you can learn. And especially when you're traveling, they can give you really important context about where you are. But I also find that museums tell stories that make me feel things. Everything from sadness to excitement. And that's the power of storytelling. Today, we're digging into museums with Maria Elena Ortiz. She's the curator at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. We chat about the history of museums, and we're going to unpack the colonial undertones that they sometimes have. And of course, we'll talk about the role of museums in tourism. Is this the first time that you've listened to Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast? If so, make sure that you've hit the follow button right now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, because there is plenty more to come this season. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at Curious Tourism Pod. You can DM us or email us anytime. All of our contact info is in the episode description. So, Katie. Yes. Remember, this was like, I think when you were going to Portugal, you messaged me and you said, oh my gosh. Mark can't find his passport or like Mark's passport is about to expire. Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, this is something I think about a lot is like taking care of your passport. It's a really important thing. (laughs) I'm sorry, but have you seen those TikToks of somebody tracking how many times their dad looked for his passport while they're in the airport and it was like something like 17 times where he's just patting his pockets and like placing it somewhere and then pats his pockets and can't find it again it's like the overdoing of trying to track your passport while you're in the airport and then just completely forgetting where you put it because you were being too cautious about where you put it it's oh yeah that's me every time i'm the airport dad (gasps) i hold both passports yes okay i always this is a good couples question, actually, because <laughs> Luke and I don't dad? do that. Luke and I are very like, we hold on to our own things because if you ever get separated, not good. It's true. Because Luke and I are, are always like, okay, what if like one of us messes up and like for loses like both the passports, then we're like mega screwed. But if we only lose one, we're still screwed, but less screwed. So we are, we're always like, it's better to keep keep each on our own because then we have better odds at like not having a disaster. This is definitely <laughs> the smarter option. I think because I think I just took on that role because I am more experienced traveler than Mark is, and because he just tends to lose things. So I think I just like took on that role, whether or not he liked it, and then. But he's a grown man. He can mm-hmm. hold on to his own passport. You know what? Yeah. This is what I'm doing in the future. I am no longer <laughs> holding on to both of our passports. I like to think I'm pretty good with my passport, although I have left it behind in a room before. I th- I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on the show before, but I left my passport in a pillowcase in in a Casa Particular, which is like a homestay in Trinidad, Cuba. And it was like a whole thing. We had to drive like hours back to get it. That was my one slip up. And I got to say, I've been really good since then. <laughs> and it's only because you're putting it in an extra safe spot. That I was, was like, trying to obscure. be safe. Yeah. It's actually a terrible hiding spot. Like that's where everyone <laughs> hides things. Like, don't do that. 
<laughs> not in the pillowcase. Um, okay, well, I brought this up because I saw a TikTok recently that I thought was really interesting. Um, so let's cue it up so you can hear it. We don't have to listen to the whole thing. I just want you to get the gist of it. So I've just been rejected on my flight to Bali and I'm currently stranded in the middle of Sydney Airport. No idea what to do or where to go. And I literally just got told that if they'd let me into Bali, the military and the security in the airport would have put me into a cell. Basically, there was a tiny bit of water damage at the bottom of my passport. I didn't even notice it. I travel all the time and it's never been mentioned to me before, but apparently, Bali Airport are really, really strict and they are known for putting people into a cell if they don't like your passport. Obviously, I'm really upset. Yeah, so this is like something I think a lot of people don't know. Damage to your passport, you can be rejected. And I kind of, I don't really like this video because she makes it sound like Bali is like the only place in the world where this happens, but it's actually like a thing all over the world. It can kind of depend on like who it is that looks at your passport. Like it just, it's luck of the draw, like how stringent they are, but yeah, for the most part, like most airports around the world will flag if your passport has any kind of damage. So I wanted to bring this up because I think it's an important PSA. Like before you're traveling anywhere, always look at your passport and make sure there's no damage on it anywhere at all. So for this person, it was water damage, which is pretty common. But it can also just be like a rip somewhere or if you haven't signed it, that's another big problem. But like what are you supposed to it? do though if you notice that damage on your passport and you're like mid-country? Like what are you supposed to do? That's why you got to check before you go. But what if it is? What if you find that it is damaged? What do you do you, then? You got to get a new one. Why can't... Why... <laughs> what's fraudulent about a little rip or water damage? I just don't understand. I honestly it, don't know. I just know it's something you can't have on your passport. The other thing that people often don't know, I found, is you have to have, for some countries, up to a year left on your passport to use it. This I know because this is why Mark ended up having to get a new passport because his passport was going to be expired in like six months. Yeah. And we were traveling and we were like, okay, this is apparently not okay. I would almost say like, cause I've been thinking about this cause mine will expire in 2025. I'm going to apply for my new one in 2024. Like I'll apply for it exactly a year before it expires so that there's like six months buffer in case it takes time for the new one to come through. This is just like my big PSA about everyone. Go check your passport. Make sure that it's not ripped or water damaged. Make sure that there's at least six months left on it. But okay, we talked to Laurel in season one and her story was that her passport got like crazy damaged, like completely ruined at a beach somewhere. What are you supposed to do? If you're abroad and it happens, you have to go to your consulate, like your country, okay. your home consulate. And they'll usually give you like a temporary passport. So like a temporary document that you use. Because like, here's the thing, like I was saying, it's kind of luck of the draw because sometimes you'll just end up with like a really chill. Somebody who barely looks at your passport at all. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for people like like white people yeah. are going to have a good chance, but like you never know. So it's better to like not risk missing a flight over it yes. and make sure that it's in good shape. Thank you for this lesson. 
Do you have any other passport horror stories? Officially freaked out. (laughs) Uh, I don't have any passport horror stories other than my actual photo. Aaron, let me just tell you. When I went to go get my airport or my passport photo taken, I got it taken at like a convenience store near my my house uh, when I lived in Toronto. And I went on a brisk November day just before work. And so I walked down the street and it was freezing cold out and got there and my face is bright red from the windburn. <laughs> Aaron, when you see, I thought it was going to chill out. And I think I put like a little bit of ma- makeup on and stuff so that it wouldn't be red because I knew it might be a little red from walking outside. Oh, no. I look like I was laying in the sun for 12 hours and just got a huge sunburn on my face. It is so embarrassing. And every time I use my passport and bring it to someone to check at the airport, they look at me like... Are you okay? Like it's, I, I feel like it's like shouldn't even be legal to have the photo that I have because it's just like a weird, weird representation of me. I know this is the thing with the ten year passports. I'm just like, <laughs> by the time we hit ten years on mine, I'm not gonna look like my oh, photo anymore. No, I, I look got, like a baby in it. I got my. I think I got my last because I I need I know I need to get a new one soon, and I think I got my last photo taken in like. 2017. And at the time I was training for a half marathon, delivering food on a Fudora bike 10 hours a week (laughs) and biking to and from work every single day in Toronto. I was 20 pounds lighter than I currently am. Like I am a different human being. (laughs) I'm like, uh, (laughs) I'm so sorry. Like (laughs) (laughs) the biggest thing I hear is dyeing your hair. Like if you dye your hair a different color, sometimes like you'll look so different that they might not think you're the person in the photo. This is the funny thing, right? If you do your makeup and hair for your passport photo, just think, is that what you're going to look like when you're going through security at like 5 a.m. at Toronto Pearson. Because that's what I thought. I was like, you know what? I never look good when I'm going through the airport. I'm usually extremely tired and not put together. So I think I should look in the photo how I will look in that moment. But it served me well. They always believe it's me. So I feel like that's the smart way to go. Put no effort in. That's my strategy. I stand by it. Okay, I think it's time we talk to uh, Maria. Are you ready to talk all things museums because you're so obsessed? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. So yeah, to begin, Maria, could you tell me about your relationship with museums? Well, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for the invite. And like you, I really always enjoy going to museums as well. And really like looking at art and talking to artists and thinking about culture and society. I grew up in Puerto Rico and like, I didn't know what a curator was or what that role is and what it all entails. Um, A professor of mine suggested to me that I should go into museum work. I didn't know what it was, but at the time I was doing anthropology and art history, I was just very curious and very excited about what that could be. Because I already had like a lot of artist friends and would talk about art and would spend time talking and, and thinking about ideas. So it just felt like a natural thing for me to explore. Yeah. I want to ask you actually, like how you would describe your work, like what a museum curator does, because I do think there is like an air of mystery around this job. A lot of people like don't know what, what it entails. 
I do a little bit of everything. You know, sometimes I'm very uh, sarcastic when I describe it to people. Like sometimes I feel like it's a cross between a politician and a car salesman. <laughs> um, uh, but it's very, but I do a little bit of everything. So of course I do some of the most traditional stuff like writing, public speaking, donor cultivation, just a lot of travel. I do a lot of traveling for different aspects of my job. A lot of thinking about like acquisition and collection building. Also within the museum, I'm, I'm part of the face of the museum, right? So I also do marketing. Uh, so there's a lot of intellectual work, but then there's also a lot of production, like what it means to put an exhibition together from the big idea to the details. And that's where a lot of the politics come in because the museums are have different departments and there's different constituencies and different audiences. But yeah. There's so much like going on behind the scenes that I think people don't think about when they just pop into a museum to see an exhibit. I'm also hoping you could describe what in your mind a museum is. And we can get like a little philosophical about it if you want. And also if you have some historical context, you can share about sort of like the history of museums and how we got to where we are today with them. So, you know, if I remember correctly from my classes in graduate school, <laughs> museums started a lot of them started through private collections, people in, in parts of Europe that were collecting a lot of work. And probably at the time, they didn't thought it was like work the way we talk about work in modern contemporary time, but paintings or objects from different places, and they would have them in their homes. And then in Paris, they were at times the public salons where people would actually open spaces to show art. And they were really like places for conversation and discussion. So that is like the most kind of like Western traditional way of talking about museums. I think right now, you know, museums are, of course, bastions of culture and a place in which we can see art, see objects and think about like just society and civilization and all the things that, that excites us as a community. Even the artists that we see right now in museums, they're speaking about today in a way that that inspires us. Totally. Okay, so I think I know what your answer to this next question will be, but I'm going to ask it just in case. So Katie came up with the great idea for this episode after she listened to an episode of another podcast called Red Nation. And the podcast episode was called We Are Not Dinosaurs. And in it, they talk about the Native Museum Industrial Complex. And coincidentally, they have a woman on, a guest named Elena Ortez, who is not you, but she led us to finding you. And in that episode, they ask her, museums, are they cool or are they whack? And we would love to hear your thoughts on this. I would say some are cool and some are whack, you know, <laughs> it's a mixture. Like, like everything, like everything. Is that the answer you thought I was going to say? Yeah, it is. Because <laughs> some museums have made me very uncomfortable. I'm going to talk about one that did and some oh, are really cool. <laughs> Which one? Okay, we can get into it. So actually, like when Katie brought up the idea for this episode, I was like perfectly primed for it because I'd been thinking a lot about this museum experience that I had on a recent trip to London, the UK, not London, Canada. I know people mix it up. So yeah, I visited the Sir John Stone Museum. Do you know it? No, but okay. just by the title, it feels like... You know, <laughs> you know where this is rap. going. Yeah. It's an obscure one, which is why I was curious to visit it. So Sir John Stone was a professor of architecture at the Royal Academy. And of course, he was a dedicated collector. He collected everything from paintings and sculptures to artifacts. 
And the museum itself is his home exactly as he left it. So you can walk around the house um, and look at everything that he collected and how he had displayed it in his home. And the part that like really captured my attention was this whole like part of the house that's dedicated to Egyptian artifacts. And I had a guide for the visit and I was just like noticing this lack of discussion around like how these items got to this house. Like, how did he acquire these Egyptian artifacts? And it just wasn't like part of the storytelling experience of this museum. And so I left it feeling like, okay, like this is obviously an example of colonial times and a colonial mindset in the UK. But it made me uncomfortable because I felt like the message of the museum was, look at all this cool stuff that this cool guy collected. And I felt like there was an opportunity for there to be more meaningful messaging around like why he was able to collect these artifacts and like how they represent colonial power and like a colonial history in the UK. So yeah, honestly, I kind of left with an icky feeling. And I know that many museums have these legacies rooted in colonialism. Collections often come from like wealthy donors who benefited from empires. And so those artifacts were often taken without permission. So yeah, that was my most recent icky museum experience. But I'm curious, like, your thoughts on that. You know, I think that, like, people often, like, in my field, we forget that culture changes and the way we tell stories changes and should change, too. So I work in art museums, and even there, like, the way you talk about our history is very much thinking through a Western lens, so I think the challenge for our industry right now is to really rethink the way we tell stories and and what are the stories that we have not told that are part of that narrative? Because I'm sure that those objects that were in that museum were part of a very rich context at a given culture. Like, what about the people that were there and used those objects? Like, I would like to know more about that. So I, I agree with you that that it is problematic to just say one part of the story and then ignore everything else that surrounds and gives more richness to those objects. It's a tough question because going to museums like that, I know the British Museum is another one that gets like a lot of flack for um, its colonial history. Do you have ideas on like how museums can rectify this today? Like as we acknowledge history more and more, what can museums be doing to sort of shift the way they storytell? Like what actions should be taken in these spaces? Well, I think that first of all, they should like bring that into awareness, right? And acknowledge it, which I think is sometimes the hardest step. And then they should hire curators and engage board members that are interested in telling those stories. You'll be surprised the wonders that it does to like, I'll give you an example. You have an art museum that has never had a creative color within those institutions. And museums like that, it's very likely that their collections of different types of artworks of artists of color, Black artists, Native artists, you know, are quite low in terms of holdings. But once you bring somebody that has the background on that, on that knowledge and on all those works, that's going to just enrich the exhibition program, enrich the museum. I would start small. Like, I, I think that sometimes it can be overwhelming to think, oh, we need to like deaccession everything or just return all these objects to the people that like originally own these works. I think that by just starting small baby steps, small goals that include different ways of storytelling and different ways of thinking about this material, 
and recontextualizing it will eventually lead us to better, more equity. Yeah, it's an interesting point you bring up about like representation, because that's something we talk about a lot on the show, about like diverse representation in travel media and like how much it's lacking. And to be honest, I never thought about it in the context of like a field like museum curation. How diverse are curators these days? Like, is it really white? (laughs) It is a very white field. Mm. Yeah. There's some, you know, groups that are more organized than others, like at least here in the U.S. where I'm at. I think there's more growth in part of the African-American dialogue in terms of curatorial Certainly the Latin American or the Latinx, even though it's very rich and is very powerful in its own right, still probably needs more representation in museums, especially positions of leadership. And mainly because of the population too. Latinos in this country are, are really are the biggest minority. So, but yet they they're probably one of the, the groups that are, are the least represented in museums, mm. collections, exhibitions, and definitely staff. It's definitely an area of growth. Yeah. And I guess another option potentially would be like to hire people for consult for situations like this. Like say they don't have a curator on the team behind an exhibit who like can personally identify with the story that's being told. Do museums ever like think, oh, let's hire someone from the community to come in and like give us consult on how to tell this story in an ethical way? Yeah, they do. That's a step, right? And I think often it's the first step. That consultant most likely is going to tell them you need to hire somebody to to develop this. Like right now, I'm actually doing that for another museum here in Detroit. Mm. And it's just a week of, of work. And that's it. I think I'm going to, of course, be a resource. And it speaks very highly of the institution that they are doing this type of work. But at the same time, you know, eventually they need to hire roles that can be dedicated for those positions because curators, you know, we build backbones. So for example, before working at my current museum, I was working at another museum in Miami and now I'm working at the Miami Museum of Fort Worth um, in Texas. And before I was at the Personal Museum in Miami, there uh, at the PAM, I built a really strong kind of African diasporic, Latinx, Latin American collection. And that's going to be there forever. So every new creator that comes to work there, they're going to have to work and build with those objects and include others into that conversation. So it's very important to to hire and have uh, leadership positions in those museums. to touch more on the storytelling aspect because a museum that does it really well is here in Toronto it's called the Aga Khan Museum it's fantastic museum if you're ever here you gotta go what are like the modes in which museums create the story because I think like everyone thinks it just has to do with like the plaques that you read but are there more elements involved in like communicating a story to someone who's visiting totally like Today, I actually went to the African-American History Museum here in Detroit, which next time you're in town, I recommend you to go because they have this installation, which, you know, I think that is quite interesting. And it basically is going inside different moments of time from the moment that humans are in Africa 
to then like the different kingdoms of Africa and then the European settlers come. It's quite bizarre because you kind of walk into the boats where they they were taking the enslaved people and then you walk into this place where you're in America being sold as cargo (gasps) and then you end up in the 2000s with like american politics of like jesse jackson and others so they're really saying that you know they're narrating a very specific narrative of just you know a history of, of blackness in the u.s so that's an example of storytelling for sure in my own work being interested in the diaspora and so on i am now working on a show called surrealism and us which deals on the history of surrealism in the caribbean and it kind of asks, it's framed under this question, like what happens if you would think about serialism instead of starting in Europe, starting first in the Caribbean, then going to Europe and then going to the U.S. So that's, you know, that's storytelling in a completely different way. Oh, I love that. When and where will this exhibit be happening? That's going to open at the Modern in Fort Worth in March of next year till July. Amazing. Come and visit. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to talk a bit more about artifacts that we see in museums. I do think actually in recent years, I've noticed like more public discussion around this stuff, especially like colonial artifacts that we see in especially European museums. So like artifacts that have been obtained through unethical or like colonial means, I'm curious what recourse you think there is now? Because this is a debate, I think, amongst people. It's like the question of should these items be returned or can they be kept in some sort of ethical way? How do you think museums should be approaching this? And what's the best way nowadays for museums to be sourcing their artifacts and their art? I think it's good to know where you got it from and who who and how. I mean, I think that for places like the British Museum or even big like the National Gallery in the, in the US, like those museums that are quite encyclopedic, that do have a lot of objects that who knows how they they came from the original places. They have bigger questions to address. Who owns them? Who are they for? Sometimes those objects were not meant to be handled the way they've been handled in museums. So it's a tricky it's a tricky conversation. I mean, some museums are returning some of the objects, others aren't. So I guess it depends a lot on the politics of a given institution. For example, you know, the headdress of Montezuma, that big headdress is actually in Austria. I lived in Mexico City and and it's bizarre to me that such an an iconic object that represents so much for Mexican culture is in Austria. And, you know, I I don't know, but I doubt that that they want to give it back. But should it be in Mexico? Probably, yeah. And that's the other part that that is complicated, that a lot of when these objects are taking from their context to another place, being in Europe, the U.S., Canada, maybe even, they are ignoring the fact that the communities and cultures that use or um, made those objects are have been eradicated from Earth. And that's a problem I see often in those more historical museums that they show these cultures as if they don't exist, as if they're not at the current time living. Like I remember one of the first time I heard, the first time I heard Mayan spoken was when I was waiting tables at a restaurant in Houston, because some of the waiters were actually Mayan descendants, you know, from Guatemala, that type of ignorance. It's, it's dangerous or it's problematic. 
Yeah, your mention of that reminds me of the, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, the Kohinoor diamond. It's in the UK now, and it came from India during the British Empire. And apparently, India has been asking for it back, and they're being denied. And it's this question of like, well, it was stolen, like, should it not be returned? And does it not belong in the place that it came from? Which actually makes me think a lot about sort of like the experience of of someone visiting a museum to see the headdress like in Austria. It's sort of out of context in a setting sense. Like to me, it would make more sense to travel to Mexico to see it. And I also wonder like if it is a disservice to Mexico's tourism industry because people I'm sure travel to go and see it. And then for it to be in Austria, it's like, well, shouldn't people travel to Mexico to see it like in its home context? I don't know. This is well, kind of like a question, too, because I understand that like people local in Austria might want to see these things as well. I don't know. It's difficult. Well, luckily, Mexico is an amazing country mm-hmm. and there's so many things to do. There's there. lots of reasons to go. Yeah, yeah. there's such so many reasons to go to Mexico. that, And, you know, Mexico has taken um, a lot of measures with their objects. So, for example... Uh, Frida Kahlo. A lot of the way about Frida Kahlo, you cannot see it unless you're in Mexico. Like they don't own like the things that are uh, considered national heritage because people steal them Hmm. (laughs) till this day. They just um, don't own them. And I guess that's what I'm saying, right? Like to see Frida Kahlo's work like and I went and I saw it in Mexico City. It was incredible. I know people who've traveled to Mexico City for that reason, like to go to that museum. Does Mexico not deserve the right? to like hold that, hold that art and make it a reason for people to come visit. <laughs> I mean, I think it does. If you're, I think it does hold the right to hold that yeah. object. It's, 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 it's in direct contact to that history. And maybe that's a good way to think about it. Like who, like in, in your level of proximity, who's the closest to that object and has kind of primary understanding of what it is. And that should be the people that should have it. Mm -hmm. And then this brings me to like another question, which is, as a museum goer, are there museums that you would say like are unethical to visit or irresponsible to visit? Like, is this something that museum goers should be thinking about? I think that there are some museums that I might be less interested in going, you know, Um, for example. and, And the thing is that a museum can be of anything, right? So there are some museums that just, you know, they just present one point of view of what creation is, not to give a sense, or of what uh, a particular culture should be. And that, to me, is probably I'm less interested in that type of story. And there were times where there were museums that were promoting stereotypes. And I, as a museum goer, I'm not interested in a museum that may call themselves an international museum and only shows one perspective because I do like, I'm very curious. So I do like learning about different ideas, different cultures. Yeah. So I guess like one way to figure that out, cause it's always hard to know, right? Like, I guess there's some clues you can dig around the website to figure out like what the vibe of a museum will be. But Katie and I always talk about like going to the reviews as well. We love leaving reviews. So maybe it's worth it for people to leave reviews if they find like, oh, this museum had a really like biased story or like, that's what I walked away with. Like maybe leave it in the reviews. Are museums checking their reviews? <laughs> I check the reviews. Yeah. 
I do. I mean, some, you know, something we take with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, but we definitely check the reviews for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to ask a bit more about modern museum culture and like if you're noticing as a curator any shifts in the approaches that like new museums are taking how they might be approaching curation differently um, to try to sort of like decolonize the practice I think that you know there's definitely a desire to diversify more they also try to hire you know more diverse curators people from different backgrounds, not all, but but some. So that is a shift that I'm seeing. I think also there's a desire to reconsider the way we say we tell history. You know, if we go into a very linear way of saying of talking about art, like, okay, this is what happened in the 1960s, and minimalism and all this kind of basic traditional Western canon um, notions, then that leads very little opportunity to include others because um, people that may not be of a particular background, do not follow that kind of lineage, traditional lineage narrative that has been so well documented and recorded in like kind of the mainstream kind of culture, right? But we'll see what stays because this is very normal in museums. Like there's waves of like, let's talk about the other and let's all be kind of Shangri-La about it. And then there's ways of uh, more conservative um, moments. So, and museums are within themselves very conservative. So it's really hard, even though these impulses are happening, like to see a big shift, that's going to take a while. Okay. What about like the nitty gritty of being a curator? Like, how do you find the individual pieces? Like, do you know a guy? I know a couple of guys, a couple of girls, <laughs> and a couple of non-gender conformist <laughs> people <laughs> of, uh, Different ways. Sometimes I find art to different art through the other artist. You know, I travel, so I'm constantly looking at art, constantly looking at exhibitions. I also go a lot to art fairs. So I basically, how do I find artists? By constantly looking at art, really, in different modes. Being in my phone, being in uh, in real life, like in places. Ugh, your life just sounds so fun. Just you curate all these amazing exhibitions. You get to travel around the world and hang out with really cool artists. Like I, this sounds really amazing. This sounds like an amazing career. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, it sounds, it sounds glamorous, right? But it's, you know, you're dealing with different types of personalities. I'll say that. And, you know, nothing is perfect. Like the art world is one of the most deregulated spaces in the world. For the longest time until today, like the whole thing about salaries and equity, like, um, and also when it comes to diversity, like I worked in Mexico City, then I came back to the U.S. And when I was working, you know, in my current job, my last job in Miami was the first time that I was shocked by how, you know, um, conservative and, and white museums are. So like it's, you know, it's not like other industries like medicine or teaching where there's at least a different, like there's a plurality of voices that has been, that have made it more accessible. But till this day, a lot of people don't know how what carriers do and how to become one. So how do you know if it's foreign to you all, like it's foreign to people that, you know, like me that didn't realize what it would do. So, so there's still more information that needs to be accessible to make it more equitable for people that work in it.
have a silly question now that just popped into my head. I'm just curious what you'll think about this. There's a lot of movies about really expensive art being stolen. Is this really a thing? Does this really happen a lot? It happens. It goes to someone who wants to buy it, you know. Like a private collector who just like hides it away? Because I'm just like, wouldn't someone recognize this? It's like a famous piece of art. (laughs) Well, yes. So people do get caught, you know, and sometimes people may buy it and they might not know. And that happens often also. That happens more and more now with artifacts that somebody would buy it and then it gets to auction and it gets somewhere that is more public and then they have to return it. And that actually, there was a, a work once that we were looking at by a really well-known artist, very hard to get. And we were going to buy it, but then we had to run it by the estate of the artist. And they were like, we have no account of this artwork. It's definitely his, but we need to, he, that that needs to come to us first. Like that's not, you know, so, so there was a lot of questions in terms of how that object was circulating. And the other thing that's very common is false falsification. Like I used to work at the Davida Faro Siqueiros in Mexico City, which is the old studio house of Davida Faro Siqueiros. If you know the muralist, there's Diego Rivera, Orozco, and Siqueiros. And Siqueiros, I mean, the museum was beautiful because my office was full of his uh, murals. But he was also known as one of the big, like he falsified a lot of his work. Like sometimes uh, he would have workers that would, he would pay them with work. So the, the worker would paint the the painting and then he would sign it, but it wasn't his painting. Oh. So there's a lot of false cicadas running in the market. And, the second, and so, so, and that's, that's another one, like the, the false, I mean, Basquiat is another big one, which, I don't know if you guys saw recently in Florida, there was a show of Basquiat that um, it was a bunch of falls. It's funny. It's almost like there's ghostwriters for artists. I've actually read about this before. I think I was reading about some of the like famous Dutch artists that they had like people that they would hire and they were actually training them and they would end up painting like parts of these paintings that we now like see in the Rijksmuseum. But it was more of like, oh, I'm mentoring you. So like, you're going to help me paint this painting that's going to take six months. Interesting. (laughs) Katie's like free labor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild, especially because some of these objects, like they trade in the art market for very high prices. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, let's imagine I'm this wealthy woman who can collect this amazing Basquiat and then I want to sell it. And then somebody tell me it's fake, you know? That's that. I'll be pretty annoyed. Okay, here's a question for you. As you got into the world of art curation, uh, were you ever influenced by the one and only Sex and the City's Charlotte York? No. <laughs> no. Very predictable answer. <laughs> yeah. No. It's completely. I mean, I I have to admit that I haven't watched Sex and the City in a long time. No. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much for entertaining that yes. question. Okay, Aaron, over to you. I've never been asked that question, so thank you for, for offering me a new experience. We are truly journalists. We've just gone completely off script because you're just like bringing up so many questions for both of us, clearly. I have one more that actually I didn't write to you in advance, but you might have some thoughts on it. And it's related to something that I've talked about on this show a lot, which is that I really love going to cities where museums are free. I love it because obviously it's free and 
but I also like it for that reason because you can just sort of go in and out as you feel because sometimes when I go to a museum here in Toronto it's like notoriously expensive to go to a museum and so I always feel this sort of pressure to like okay I'm gonna spend like six hours be completely exhausted by the time I leave and sometimes it detracts from the experience because I feel like I'm just trying to like consume as much of that museum as I can in one visit whereas like for example when I was in Dublin all the museums are free so I would just every day sort of pop into one for an hour go to different sections and I, it felt like I was having a more meaningful experience because it wasn't like rushed. There was no pressure on it. But then I was wondering, because I guess when museums are free, it means they're being publicly funded. And so I'm curious if you think there's any issues with that. Like, is it better for a museum to be like privately funded versus publicly funded? Do you think museums should be free? You know, I worked in both. So I worked in, in Mexico City museums, not publicly funded, right? And here in the States, museums are mostly private funded, right? To me, if you're asking me, I think that it's whatever works best for the museum. So for example, there are museums that, you know, when you have a mix of funds, it's really great because I, there's more checks and balances, I guess. So there's, you know, partly public, partly private you know, some challenges when I worked in Mexico in terms of museums was that we never had, like, all our budget was determined by the state and the election. So if you had a, a president which wanted to dedicate funding to another industry, then of course you would suffer, the art museums would suffer. And there wasn't necessarily, at that time, I cannot speak for today, but at that time, you know, there was more to do with the philanthropic culture so I think that it depends because at the same time, you could argue that one is, if, if a museum is privately funded and there's endowment set up for, for it, then perhaps you have more intellectual freedom, but which happens a lot in the U.S. because everything is private, then the boards become very important. And often they might have say on what you show in exhibitions and the type of artists that you work with. I'll say this, though, in terms of the free entrance question, that's independent of public or private, because you could get a donor, even in a private organization, to pay for having the museum for free. Because at the end of the day, admission within a museum's overall budget might not be a big ticket item. It's, it's, not, as, it's not like salaries, right? <laughs> or the electricity bill. So, like, I, I don't think that, like, that entrance question is 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 a public private question it's more about like where the, if there's funds that can cover that cost and if the philosophy and vision of the leader of the museum or the board or whatever finds that as an important mandate to adhere to and a lot of it is also cultural like here in the US a lot of museum um, prices tickets have been going up and I think that there's a lot of, there's some places in New York like that it's thirty dollars to go into a museum, and I would argue that in the U.S. there's a certain value to paying for stuff, and it's I find interesting that like that uh, what you mentioned about committing to time, because I think that often what all people feel is also anxiety. Like for example, Jamie Holmes he talks about how anxious he was the first time he went to a museum. He didn't know what to wear, for somebody that might not be as a custom to go into museums, they don't know how to wear it. It just creates more distance, right? And I think that's a, a problem, especially like with modern art and art museums, which is where I work. Um, uh, 
Yeah, it's almost like I might be totally wrong, but there is this sort of like air of, I don't know, like high culture. I hate that phrase, but around museums where I think like they might not feel like safe and accessible places to all people. But they're fun places too, like to kind of just look at things and to just be amazed by what what a human hand can do or a mind can do. Mm-hmm. So I certainly, you know, if you don't know what to wear, you don't know what to do, just wear whatever. Nobody cares. No one's looking at you. They're looking at the art. Well, the guards <laughs> might be looking at you. <laughs> yeah, but that's true. You don't need to care about what they're doing. Okay, so you're obviously an avid museum goer. Can you tell me about one of the most meaningful museum visits you've had? There's so many. I'll just say one that I had this week. So um, I went to the Detroit Institute of the Arts, and there they have perhaps like the best Diego Rivera mural that he did in the state. If you saw the Frida movie, I think there's scenes of him making it. It's in the middle of the courtyard and is, you know, is this mural where it's about, you know, he was commissioned by the director of the museum and the mural was paid by Ford during the height of like the auto industry in Detroit, in the U.S. And I believe that when he started, there were protests going around with because of workers' rights. And then also the depression was starting. So he's kind of extrapolating like this different moments about industry and civilization. And the mural looks like beautiful. Like it was done yesterday. And you just walk in there and you just get completely, you know, taken by this piece of art that it was done almost a hundred years ago, but it feels so contemporary. But there's other museums that I recommend. I mean, there's a great museum, I think, in almost in every part of the world. What would you say to people who say museums are boring? (laughs) That they haven't found their right museum, Mm. you know, that's what I would say. I'm really, I'm curious now, like anyone listening, if you don't like museums, DM us, tell us why. Let's get into this because I'm curious now. I don't think I've ever actually met someone who has told me like in all seriousness that they don't like museums because I will not allow it. But next time I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna <laughs> dig a little deeper for some answers. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really great. I've learned so much. Um, where can people find you if they want to follow your work? You can definitely find me on the gram. I am at Contemporary Chica. I'm there. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with a fellow traveler. Make sure you're following us on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you're feeling extra generous, you can leave us a five-star review or support us on Patreon. Anything you can do to support this show will help to foster meaningful change throughout the travel industry. Curious Tourism, the Responsible Travel Podcast, is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced and edited by Katie Lohr in Canada's Toronto area. Our theme music is called Night Stars by Wolf Saga, David R. Miracle, and the Chippewa Travelers. If you want to reach out to us, check the show notes for all the info you need. I'll see you in two weeks, but in the meantime, stay curious. <laughs>